Stay in for the duration, and yes, it'll be a long duration. I haven't been here for a long time, so now a joy for me to uh, be with you, see your smiling faces. Great to be with God's people and to worship uh, the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the Gospel according to John, the fifth chapter. There's also an outline you can follow along in your uh, worship folder as well. I grew up in the state of Minnesota on a farm, and my earliest memories of vacations were always fishing. There are 12,000 and some odd lakes in the state of Minnesota, and quite a few fish in there. Reminds me of a story I heard about a father and a son. They went fishing one summer day, and so they're out there fishing, and the son's a little lad, and he's a little inquisitive. And so he starts asking his dad a few questions. He says, hey, dad. How does a boat float? And his dad said, well, don't rightly know, son. Uh, Dad, do do fish sleep? Well, don't rightly know, son. Dad, can fish breathe underwater? Well, I don't rightly know, son. Hey, Dad, why is the sky blue? Can't rightly tell you, son. He looked at him and he said, Dad, do you mind me asking you all these questions? And he says, well, not at all, son. If you don't ask questions, you never learn nothing. (laughs) Well, you've been learning a few things as you've been going through the the, uh, gospel according to John. And when I flash this this name here up on the uh, picture, uh, I want to see how much you know. So when you see this name, obviously someone comes into your mind. You've got it all figured out, don't you? Huh? Ben over here. Huh? Ben's got it all figured out. Well, let's see how smart he really is. <clears throat> this is the real. Well, the real Cassius Clay, please stand up. Uh, yeah. Most of you don't know this uh, fella. He's a little old and uh, he's not moving too much these days. But, but anyway, he was an anti-slavery leader. And in fact, he helped start the Republican Party. Probably didn't know that. He was uh, an ambassador to to, uh, Russia, and he helped negotiate the purchase of Alaska in 1867. He was actually appointed a a major general in the Union Army, but he refused to fight as long as slavery continued to be protected in the southern states. Now, most of you, you know, you thought of this particular fellow when I mentioned the name or put up there, Cassius Clay, better known as Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was not known for being silent. He was known for talking and telling everybody that he was the greatest. And some say he was the greatest heavyweight boxing champion of all time. We lived in Manila. They, had, they still have big posters, the thriller in Manila. Uh, this fight that he had with uh, Frazier and so forth there. Big deal to most of you and so on. I heard a story about Muhammad Ali. Uh, he was on an airplane one time. The stewardess comes up to him and says, uh, there he's getting ready to take off. Uh, excuse me, sir, would you please buckle up? And he says, uh, no, I'm, I'm not buckling up. Apparently you don't know who I am. And she says, no, I don't, sir. Just please buckle up. The plane's about ready to take off. No, I'm not buckling up. I'm Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest fighter in all the world. She says, please buckle up, sir. You don't understand. I'm Superman. And the stewardess looked at him and she said, You know what? Superman doesn't need planes. Buckle up, buddy. (laughs) 
Now, maybe Muhammad Ali suffered from a little identity crisis. But let me tell you something. Jesus never did. And as you've been going through the gospel according to John here, there should be no debate. Seventy-some million Americans watched the vice presidential debate the other night. Eighteen million less than watched the the presidential uh, debate. But there should be no debate about Jesus. In chapter 1, He's the Word that became flesh. He's the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah who's long awaited. He's arrived. In chapter 2, He's the Creator as He turns water into wine. In chapter 3, He's the One who's lifted up, the Savior of the world. In chapter 4, He's the water of life as He quenches the thirst of this woman who had five husbands and the one she was now living with wasn't her own. In chapter 5, He's the healer. In chapter 6, He's the bread of life that comes down and gives life to the world. In chapter 7, He's a teacher as He teaches at the feast. In chapter 8, oh, He's the forgiver. As they bring to Him a woman caught in the very act of adultery and throw her before Him half naked. In chapter 9, He's the light of the world. In chapter 10, He's the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. In chapter 11, He's the resurrection and the life. In chapter 12, He's the king of Israel as they wave, put the palm branches down. In chapter 13, He's the servant as He washes the disciples' feet. In chapter 14, He's the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, He's the vine. In chapter 16, He's the comforter. In chapter 17, He's our high priest. In chapter 18, He's the obedient one as He goes to the cross. In chapter 19, He's the crucified one. In chapter 20, He's the resurrected one. And in chapter 21, He's the great and the chief shepherd. And John wrote this book so that you might believe, that I might believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life in His name. If there's no life in Jesus' name, why are you here this morning? If Jesus is not the Son of God, pretty dim for us. huh? But John goes through and he gives seven miracles to prove who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus Himself in this letter, John quotes Him so many times, and Jesus explains par excellence, his identity, and who he, he is. Now, when we come to chapter 5, we, we come to a pool. I want you to follow along with me as I read. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, that's after this encounter with the woman and the healing that took place, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews went up to Jerusalem. Probably the Feast of the Passover, but there are many uh, different feasts. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well, from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 
years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is a Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who he was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am also working. Now, I just want to share with you five simple thoughts, five simple questions, and five little keys this morning in my time with you. Think about yourself. Put yourself in this man's place. You can't walk. You've been in that condition for 38 years. I think all of us walked in here today. Have you thanked the Lord recently just for your legs? The ability to walk. And here's this guy sitting by the pool. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has dealt in chapter 1 with fishermen, in chapter 2 with his mother, in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, in chapter 4, a woman at the well. And now in chapter 5, he deals with the multitudes as they're all sitting by the pool, but in particular, one. I don't know if any of you thought, but as I was reading here, why didn't he heal the whole lot? It says that there were multitudes of sick and lame and blind. You got a picture? There's a pool. Everybody's around it there because an angel, and by the way, if you read the book of Revelation, there's an angel called the Angel of the Waters. Now, some people think that this was just a myth that the waters moved at certain times during the season. But apparently, it, was, it, was, it really did happen. These waters moved, and the first one in after that got in. All the rest, too bad, huh? I mean, I don't know if people stayed up at night waiting for the waters to move or whatever, you know? Just, you you got to get in there. If you get in, you get cured. You get healed. But there's only one guy that gets healed. And so, I don't know what you're doing these days. I mean, summer's over. You're not laying by the pool. But uh, maybe you're sitting Maybe you're waiting for something to happen. Maybe you're waiting for some kind of healing and so forth in your life. And what I want us to look at, first of all, today is the mystery of God's prerogative. Or you could say God's sovereignty. Or you could say the mystery of divine 
selection. Why he picked this particular one out, I don't know. Maybe it was because he had been there so long. 38 years. And it says here, and Jesus knew that he had been there a long time. Here's my question for you today. What are you waiting for God to do in your life? You know, we all have needs, don't we? And we all are very patient people, aren't we? No, most of us Americans are rather impatient people. Uh, sometimes we've got to wait a long time. Sometimes we need to be very, very patient with God because we get impatient with Him like we get impatient with other people. I just flew back from Michigan on Friday and while I was there I picked up a little book my sister had called Waiting on God by A.W. Tozer. If you want to do an interesting study, if you have a Bible program, click in the word wait in the Old Testament. Especially the Psalms. And see how often the word wait is mentioned. You know that there are tremendous blessings for those who wait upon the Lord? In our day of quick fixes and easy answers and fast solutions, that's not God's way. When we think about God's prerogative, God's intervention in your life, He doesn't owe you a thing. He doesn't owe me anything. It all just flows out of His divine character. And out of all the multitudes that's laying there, He puts His hand on this one guy. He has a conversation with him. He takes an interest in him. Just like He takes an interest in your life. He put His hand upon me, touched me when I was 30 years of age initially. I was as lost as lost could be. Living my own life for myself. And God saw me in my fear and in my sickness and in my unwholeness and He had uh, mercy upon me. Patience. Are you a good waiter? You have heard of the endurance of Job? Seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings with him? It's good to wait. Don't get in a hurry. Don't be blaming God. Wait for him. Trust in him. Secondly, we find the uh, inadequacy of human ability. This guy had been here 38 years. He had tried all that he could. There was a woman that had been bleeding probably some kind of female problem for 18 years. Remember? She would spent all her money on doctors, every kind of cure, every kind of quack probably that there was, and she still continued to bleed. She couldn't go to the temple or any place else because it was an issue of blood. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll get well. She had no ability of her own to heal herself. This guy has 38 years in his sickness. There is no possible way. Now, it's interesting that the place that Jesus heals him is called Bethesda. Do you know what the word means? A house of mercy. Around this house of mercy, around this pool, you've got these multitudes and multitudes of people. 
People sitting there. People laying there. It was actually a place of pain. You know that Americans spend a hundred billion dollars a year on chronic pain? Just trying to alleviate it, get a little headache, take a pill. I mean, you can go on and on for the different kinds of things, the drugs that people take for pain. But this guy is suffering some real pain in his life. The reason he's there at the pool is it goes on a little later is because of his own sin. Sin does cause pain and has consequences in our lives, as we all well know. And so, it's a place of pain. It's a place of shame. But it's also a place of mercy. That's what the name means. Bethesda. And so, along comes the merciful one. Jesus. And he sees this guy. So, let me ask you a question. What's your point of pain? Past hurts that need to be healed? A lifestyle that you're not too proud of? Perhaps some sinful habit pattern that you still have you can't get rid of? An addiction of some sort? Whatever it might be. We all have points of pain. Maybe you're waiting. You're waiting for your husband to change. (laughs) You're waiting for your kids to get with it, to get on the program. You're waiting for a new job. You're waiting for a financial breakthrough. You're waiting for the stock market to come back up again. You know? I don't know what it is that you're, what you're waiting for. I don't know what your point of pain is. But he does. And so he saw this guy helpless, hopeless. And he fixed his gaze upon him. It's because he loves sinners. He loves people. And so, you know, The key is really humility. To realize that you can't do it yourself. You can't change your mate. Have you come to that conclusion? I've been married 44 years now. It it doesn't work. I've tried. Patty's tried. Lord knows she's tried. (laughs) Ah, no. And so, humility. Where we come and we're bankrupt. Blessed are the poor and... Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, I think it says, who are spiritually bankrupt. That's the way you get into the kingdom. You don't come with all your good works and your uh, you know, slick deeds or things that you've done. You come just as you are to Christ. And uh, you allow Him to work. And so, thirdly, we see the, the um, greatness of divine mercy. Not just a little mercy. The greatness of His mercy. And so he asked this guy a question. He says, do you wish to get well? Now, doesn't it seem like rather a stupid question? 38 years laying there waiting by the pool. But you know, there are some people who don't want to change. They just like the condition that they're in. And they like the sympathy that they get. Oh, poor me, and everybody feels sorry for you, and you have a pity party. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I might as well go eat some worms. You know, that's what my sister, my oldest sister I just visited, used to tell me when I got down. She says, Glenn, nobody loves you. Everybody hates you. Why don't you go eat some worms? I said, a great comfort you are. (laughs) But, uh, so here's this guy, and he says, do do you wish to get well? And uh, how about you? 
You got some points of pain? You got some habits? You've got some issues in your life? And uh, Jesus comes along and says, Hey, you want to get well? You want to be whole? Oh, no, I like this little secret that I've got. I, I, I cuddle it. I da-da-da-da-da. And uh, so he asks us in our life. Now, the key is knowing who Jesus is. This guy didn't know. And Jesus, just because of his prerogative and his sovereignty, he puts his hand and he heals this fellow. But for you and for me, it's comprehending who Jesus is. That's one of the reasons you're going through the Gospel of John, is that you might know this guy called Jesus. And uh, the reason he came is so that you might know what he's like, what God is like. The Word, the eternal Logos, divine expression of God, became flesh, and as one version says, moved into our neighborhood. So you would know what Jesus is really like, what God is really like. I told a story at uh, Valley here a couple of weeks ago. There was this little boy, and every day when he came home from school, he would walk by the pet shop. And uh, the pet store owner had a, a whole bunch of puppies that were there. And uh, they were brand new and so forth. And so every day he would look forward to after school to go and look at these puppies. And he would play with them and so forth like that. And one day he said to the store owner, he says, hey, listen, uh, are those puppies for sale? And this guy says, uh, well, sure. He says, well, how much are they? And so he gave him a price. And the little boy went home and told his mom and dad. And he says, mom and dad, could I have a puppy? And they said, well, we don't have any money uh, for you. But, you know, if you can earn some odd jobs and so forth, you fine. And so he did. He mowed lawns and he did all kinds of things, collected cans and stuff like this and put them in. And finally, he had enough. And he comes back to Stoner and he says, it's all here. And he says, well, go and pick out a puppy. So oh, they, were, they were running around and jumping and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But there was this one puppy off over in the corner just sitting there. And the little boy goes over and picks him up and comes to the store owner and says, uh, I made my choice. I want this puppy. The owner says, no, you, you, you don't want that puppy. Why not? Well, look at him. He's crippled. You want a dog you can play with. You want one you can go to the park with. You know, can run and jump and, and uh, have on a leash and pull you on your skateboard. You, you want a dog like that. You don't want a crippled dog. And then the little boy pulled up his pant leg and showed the, well, the reason why he had some braces on down there, a childhood disease. And he looked at the stoner and he said, yep, he's crippled. I'm crippled. I thought because we're both crippled, we could be better friends. Huh. Jesus became flesh so that you would really know what God is like. So that you could have a friend that walks through you in all your points of pain. May not be 38 years, but I'll tell you, all of us know what it's like to hurt inside no matter who we are. And so He became flesh. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. 
He knows what it's like to go hungry. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be hated, to be spit upon. He can identify with you and your pain. And yet, He can heal you. Uh, throughout the Gospel of John, one of the things that Jesus keeps repeating is He keeps telling people uh, that, that I'm the I Am. When you come to chapter 8, you will after a while, He, he says, you know, before Abraham was born, I Am. Now, that takes you back to the second book in the Bible called Exodus. And in Exodus there, he reveals himself, Jehovah does, to Moses as the I am. I am who I am. I think it's ego emini in the, in the Greek. I am the God who makes things happen right now. Now, it's interesting as you go through the Gospel of John and you compare it to the book of Exodus... In the book of Exodus, remember when the children of Israel came out of the Red Sea? Remember all the mighty things he did? The first thing that happens, they start complaining because there's no water. And they come to a place called Marah and the waters are bitter. And so what does Moses do? He takes some, some a tree and he throws it in. The waters become sweet and, and they, they have the water. They, they, their thirst is quenched. So you have this woman in John chapter 4. She's thirsty for reality in life. In John chapter 7, Jesus stands up and He says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. In Exodus chapter, I think about 17 or 18, they have no water again. And so what does He do? He brings water right out of a rock. I'm the guy back there in the Old Testament. So they're Complain because they don't have any food. So what does God do? He sends manna down for 40 straight years. So when you come to John chapter 6, what does Jesus do? I am the bread who comes down out of heaven and gives life to you and to the world. How did they travel by night? Huh? A pillar of fire. So what does He say in John chapter 8? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in John chapter 9, he heals a man who's born blind from birth. He takes all these incidents, John does, and he, he kind of weaves them together to show that this one in the Old Testament, it's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And when you come to know him, you come to know reality. You come to know life. You come to know forgiveness. This is the one you can be confident how many other signs Jesus did, but these have been written in this gospel so that you might believe that He is the Christ. And, uh, well, you're not listening fast enough here. Here are the puppies. I forgot to show you the puppies before. All right. Fourth, the importance of human responsibility. You know, there is human responsibility. Besides God's prerogative and His sovereignty, we have to respond to it. He says, take up your pallet and walk. And my question to you is, whatever point of pain, whatever you're going through, whatever you're waiting on God for, whatever you're frustrated with in life and you've laid it before Him and He hasn't answered, be patient. But you need to also remember that you need to do what He tells you to do. The key in your life and my life is obedience. Are we going to obey Him or aren't we going to obey Him? So the key is obedience. 
Whoops, I've got to back up a minute here. not used to using this clicker and stuff all the time here. Are you going to obey Him? Are you going to obey, actually, His Word? So you've already seen in the Gospel of John people obeying His Word. Fill up the water pots. If they hadn't filled them up, there would have been no miracle of wine. He says to the nobleman's son, remember? The guy wants, come and heal my son. You just finished that. And what does Jesus say? Go. Your son lives. He just speaks the Word and he's healed. You're going to see in chapter 11, Lazarus, come forth. His spoken Word. In the beginning... God created the heavens of the earth and earth was formless and void. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so you find Jesus speaking the word. Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. Because of obedience, Zacchaeus found out who Jesus Christ was. So obedience is key in your life and my life. Go sell all that you have and come and follow me. The foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man has got nowhere to lay his head. You still going to follow me? He says to the disciples, follow me, I'll make you fishers men. They left their nets, they left their father, they left their mother. They began to follow. It's obedience. It's key in your life and my life. And then we see lastly the impact of supernatural healing. This guy picks up his bed, his pallet, and he walks and... Um, He's healed. What's the first thing he does? He goes to the temple. The guy had never been to the temple. You couldn't go as a lame man into the temple. Nobody, sick, lame, or blind, or anything like that could go. He goes to the temple. What does he go there for? To give thanks. He's been healed. 38 years in his sickness. And Jesus meets him there. And uh, look, if you would, in verse 14. Behold, you become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. What could be worse than 38 years in your sickness? 40 years in your sickness? Well, there's a consequence of sin. The Bible tells us the wage of sin is death. Yeah, there's something worse than being 38 years in your sickness. There's an eternity separated from God. That's a whole lot worse because that's forever and ever and ever. Now, so my question is, is purity a goal for you? Jerry Bridges, in his little little uh, book that he writes, he asks a question. Um, do you make it your aim not to sin or not to sin very much? Oh, I don't want to be too big of a sinner. Hey, we all stumble and fall. We're all a bunch of stumblers here, but we get back up. But our aim should be purity. Shouldn't it? Yeah. So when you stumble and fall, you ask forgiveness. When you blow with your husband or your wife, you say, Honey, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? When you do it with your kids, men, humble yourself and say, Son, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have gotten upset. I shouldn't have raised my voice. I shouldn't have did what I did. Would you please forgive me? They know something about grace because they blow it too. Don't become proud. Don't become arrogant. No. The key when someone like Jesus heals you from 38 years or he forgives all your sin, it's gratefulness. Now, you know the result of all of this. The result of all of this is that the scribes and the Pharisees now want to kill Jesus because he did it on the Sabbath. Can you believe? 
But that's religion. Religion will send you straight to hell. Jesus can save you. He can forgive you. He can heal your deepest pain and the pain of your neighbors and your friends and those that are around you. And so we see these legalistic Pharisees who lay all kinds of heavy burdens and everything that on people. Not Jesus. As I close today, I, uh, I give you three, three little thoughts here. Number one, I don't know where you are in your journey. Start or keep on trusting Jesus. He's the only one that can heal you. His word is true. There's no debate about it. When you watch the presidential, vice presidential uh, debates, you don't know who to believe or what to believe. Honestly, don't do you? They, they quote facts after fact after fact and this and that. Well, you don't know if it's true or if it's not. You can believe these words. Start trusting him if you've never trusted him before or if you do. Secondly, stop sinning. Make it your goal not to. When you do, well, you ask for forgiveness. But that's ought to be a goal for you. Clean up your life. Watch what goes in your eye and your ear gate. Huh? It's critical. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So he acts, so he behaves. So it's, it's important, the information that you're getting through your eye and your ear gate and all of that. And then lastly, in the midst of this, keep ministering. Jesus says here something very... This is his, his really first claim to the scribes and the Pharisees who he is. My father is working until now and I myself am also working. He claims equality with God. He's going to start now and he's going to start to do it over and over and over between now and through chapter 9 and chapter 10. Then it's basically finished after that, his claims about who he is to the religious leaders and all of it. So keep ministering. You're not perfect. So oh, I, can't, I can't minister because I'm not perfect. There, none of us would minister. The band would never play a sound up here. All right? And I want to share with you as I close a, a last a, a story. Um, I, I finished reading a couple of books recently. My wife and I got away. And in the one, there's a story told. The, the book is called <clears throat> He Loves Me. And uh, there's a story told about this pastor who met a woman from the Midwest who was uh, divorced by her husband. He came to her one day and he says, I'm gay. I'm leaving you. I'm living with my partner. A few years later, he got AIDS. And his wife felt in her heart that she wanted to go and minister to her husband. So let me, I, I quote, she did just that. With her husband's permission, she moved back in, not as a wife, but as a nurse, and cared for him as the disease progressed. I can't imagine what it took for her to do it, and I don't think her obedience should become a standard for others, but she talked about it as the greatest experience in her life. Before he died, her husband and his partner came to faith and repentance. And what's more, after her former husband's death, she stayed on to take care of his former partner until he died. While she was doing that, other AIDS patients began to come to her for help. During the next decade, she cared for more than 60 AIDS men. And all of them came to faith. Today, she's converting an abandoned hospital to extend care. And she travels the world helping others with AIDS and those who seek to care for them. She ministered love and healing 
in the name of Jesus to a husband who divorced her and left her. That's what happens when Christ comes into your heart and life. You can do supernatural things in His name. You can love your wife. You can love your husband even if he's disobedient to the Word with the love of Jesus. You can love your kids when they go wayward. You may need to put some boundaries up, but you can do it. Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege that we have of loving you. And it's only because you loved us first. And you sent Jesus to be our healer. Jehovah Rapha, I am the God who heals you. And if there's anybody here today who's never trusted in Jesus, they're not healed from the greatest sickness of all, the sickness, disease of sin. If they would just turn and ask for forgiveness, to believe that you died for their sin on Calvary, that your blood paid the penalty, they could be healed, forgiven, receive life eternal. So thank you for my brothers and sisters here today and pray your blessing as we continue just to worship you in a song and then as Dave and, and others just share out some vision for the future for Neighborhood Bible Church. We're glad to be yours. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.